Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. El Nino has come and gone, and La Nina is stirring in the Pacific Ocean. On the show today, we will learn what the rains of 2016 did for California's reservoirs and what we can expect next year. We'll hear about new research suggesting that California should expect more dry times ahead. Some scientists suggest California may even be heading into a mega drought that could last for decades, which has happened in the past. After El Nino sent storms to the state last winter, the Brown administration relaxed some water restrictions, allowing regional authorities to decide how to manage the worst drought in the state's modern history. The governor also made permanent bans on certain activities, such as hosing off sidewalks and washing cars with hoses that don't have shut-off valves. Some question if those gestures even matter when 80% of the state's water goes to agriculture, which has a reputation for playing fast and loose with water that gets on the cheap. Over the next hour, we will discuss the future of water and food in the era of climate disruption. This program is underwritten by our friends at the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. We have three distinguished guests here today to talk about keeping the California economy well hydrated. Noah Diffenbaugh is Associate Professor in the School of Earth Sciences at Stanford and a Senior Fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment. He's a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, and is a former Google Science Communication Fellow. Peter Glick is one of the world's foremost authorities on fresh water. He's co-founder and now president emeritus of the Pacific Institute, a water think tank based in Oakland. He's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award and the author of many books, including Bottled and Sold, the story behind our obsession with bottled water. Karen Ross is the California Secretary of Food and Agriculture. She grew up as a 4-H kid on a farm in Nebraska and is now responsible for promoting and protecting California's $54 billion agricultural economy. She previously was Chief of Staff for U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. Before that, led the California Association of Wine Grape Growers. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, all of you. Uh, Peter Glick, let's begin with you. We had a wet year. Is the drought over? No. 
Okay. So um, we had a wet. We didn't have a wet year, actually. To be specific, we sort of had an average year, and it's been so long since we've had an average year that everybody kind of got excited. Um, but rainfall statewide was a tiny bit below average. Wet in the north, dry in the south. Uh, the snowpack was a, a little below average, and it melted really fast, uh, which we can talk about later, perhaps. Uh, some of the big reservoirs filled, but not all of them. Um, and our groundwater is still massively overpumped. So, so by that measure, uh, the drought is not over. Karen Ross, how is the agricultural sector being affected? Is it, is it hitting the, the farms, and, and are we seeing impacts at the grocery store? Uh, well, yes, it is hitting the farms, and um, we've commissioned economic impact reports to better understand how farmers are managing their way through this. Um, it's fallowing acres. That's what farmers do because of the water rights system. The water's cut off, and so you fallow acres if you don't have access to groundwater. So we know that last year, as an example, we, we were short on surface water deliveries by about 8.7 million acre-feet, we compensated by pumping 6 million acre-feet from the ground, so we were short 2.7 million acre-feet, which resulted in over a $2.5 billion economic loss of, of ac- economic activity that wasn't being generated, 10,500 jobs that were not created as a result of following that kind of acres. So, yes, it is hitting the farms, and that's starting to be back-to-back. Um, as, with regard to the food, I think it would take a much longer sustained drought to really work its way through the food system. Um, we know that food more and more is being sourced from other countries. Um, in the fresh produce aisle, we've probably seen the most direct impact, but we're also seeing it when the cost of inputs and the cost of labor have gone up, so it's, it would be hard to say, and that was a result of the drought. So far, food prices have remained fairly stable. But if we continue to have these kinds of situations and we grow less and less, then the things that we specialize in California could, in fact, see increased food prices at the grocery store. Agriculture is 2% of the California state economy, 80% of water use. Karen Ross, you penned an op-ed last uh, year saying that it's worth it. Do the math for us. How is 80% of the water good for 2% of of the economy? I I know that Peter will will appreciate um, how much um, my constituents go crazy talking about 80% of the water. It is true that 80% of the developed water in California and on a global basis. Tell us um, what developed water means. Developed water means that water that we capture, manage, put into reservoirs system move to those places of need, um, as opposed to all of the water that's available from nature in good years that, that, that mean increased flows in our streams, that, that benefit our wildlife and just our green landscapes. So in, the, in that, it's a different statistic. And the 2%, I do take exception to because agriculture is like a renewable resource. Every year we plant we nurture, we harvest, that's creating economic activity so that there are many ways that we benefit the economy far beyond that 2%. We're embedded in insurance and finance, we're embedded in marketing, we're embedded in entertainment because we're a big part of our tourism industry here in California. 25% of the $100 billion that's spent by tourists in our state every year is going specifically to culinary tourism, restaurants, wine tasting, and all those other fun types of activities. Let's get Noah Diffenbaugh. Does does, uh, ag get a disproportionate use of water compared to its contribution to the economy? Well, I think what I would add is that food is more than 2% of what we eat. (laughs) It's close to 100. Um, (laughs) 
and like this don't guy. need to go to Stanford <laughs> to get that math. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think you know, we, you know, it's not controversial to say that California's agriculture is is you know critical for you know, the U.S. Uh, agriculture and, and for the globe and and um, you know for for a lot of what we eat. Uh, beyond the economic value, uh, we rely on California for, for that agriculture. So I think the real, the real challenge that we're seeing uh, in this drought is that uh, we have a lot of really worthwhile demands on our water, and when we face shortfalls, we really see the stress on, uh, across those demands. And I think it's, not, it's less a question of which of these should we get rid of and more a question of in the context of a changing climate where we know that these kinds of conditions are becoming more frequent and will continue to become more frequent, how do we manage uh, those different priorities in a way that, um, that manages those, those climate risks and meets the needs of, of people and ecosystems? So, Peter Glick, do uh, environmentalists and others uh, unfairly criticize uh, agriculture for its uh, perceived high water use? So, I, I think we're thinking about this the, the wrong way. Um, California is a great place to grow food. The, the soils are incredible. The climate at the moment is incredible. Um, there's typically a lot of water. Uh, I think we'll always be a big agricultural economy. Uh, during the drought, the agricultural sector has done remarkably well. Um, some economic impact, perhaps some employment impact. Farm prices have been high. Food prices have been high. Revenue's been pretty good. But, but partly... That's because we're unsustainably overdrafting groundwater. You made the point that so we increased groundwater pumping to 6 million acre feet. Well, that's completely unsustainable, and we're, we're seeing groundwater levels drop. We're seeing subside, subsidence in the Central Valley and the southern, in the southern San Joaquin. That can't continue. If the drought were to continue, we're going to see fundamental changes in agriculture. We may see some land come out of production permanently. We're already seeing changes in crop type. Uh, we're going to see more tension between cities and farms and ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we can't leave the ecosystems out here. There have been enormous ecosystem impacts of the drought, and that's part of the, that's part of the equation. So the long-term question is how are we going to balance all of the things we want to do with water, with how much water we have? You mentioned subsidence. I want to roll a clip from KQED. This is Michelle Sneed, a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, interviewed on KQED about subsidence, which is the sinking of land in the Central Valley as a result of uh, pumping out groundwater. Let's listen to this clip. I've been studying land subsidence uh, throughout the West for 20 years, and I've never measured rates like this before. Over the past two decades, the ground in one area has sunk from Sneed's head to her feet. According to NASA, some parts of the Central Valley are now sinking more than two inches a month. We saw that the area being affected by subsidence was enormous, stretching all the way from I-5 to 99 about 1,200 square miles were being affected by subsidence. That's an area the size of Rhode Island. That's uh, Michelle Sneed, a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. Karen Ross, Mm -hmm. the size, an area the size of Rhode Island, sinking as much as two inches a month from the pumping of groundwater. So there's a couple things I want to say. First off, historically, over time, we have... And and it's not just farmers that depend on groundwater. We also have some cities that are 100% dependent on groundwater. We have historically in agriculture um, relied on groundwater for about 30% of our total needs, which is more sustainable. It's just that in drought time, that is our reservoir. That is supposed to be our buffer to carry us through disastrous drought conditions. And the last few years, we're pumping as high as 60% of our water is coming from that groundwater. 
I, I think everyone will acknowledge that that is not sustainable, which is why I was also very engaged in helping to pass the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. We cannot continue to do that, and we cannot waste time in putting our basins back into balance and doing that in a very thoughtful kind of way to make sure we have that buffer for future generations. It's interesting to note our history that one of the reasons we went into the state water project, the Central Valley water project, is because subsidence was not new and we knew that we needed to have surface water to make sure that we wouldn't do permanent harm to our basins. So this is being repeated and that's why we have to take it as an alarm call. So Peter Glick, sinking lands and pumping too much groundwater. So, so Karen's exactly right. I mean, there is sort of a, a little bit of optimism in the sense that we now have, for the first time, a sustainable groundwater management act. We have some laws that are trying to slowly bring these overdrafted basins back into balance. I would note, though, this isn't just a drought problem. Even during a good year, we overdraft groundwater. We use more groundwater than nature recharges, and that can't continue. It's It's drawing down your bank account without recharging it. And so part of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act conversation is how to bring those basins back into balance. How maybe in dry years we draft overdraft groundwater, and then that's okay if in wet years we can recharge those basins again. And we're, we're not there yet. That's, that's the conversation that's happening. But doesn't each individual farmer have an incentive to suck out as much as they can? Because if I don't get it, Karen's farm will. And if Karen's farm doesn't, Peter's farm will. So, Well, at the moment, that's right. At the moment, it's a free-for-all. But the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act is designed to let the local basins develop plans to bring their basins into balance. If they don't, the state can the state step, step in. in. But, but there's a local incentive at the moment over the next decade <laughs> to slowly bring these basins back, back into balance. Uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, some recent research came out of Stanford, uh, Rob Jackson, saying that there could be three times uh, the amount of groundwater in the, in the Central Valley. Uh, that headline uh, might say to farmers, okay, let's open up the taps, keep pumping. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, you know, the message uh, that I take from that paper and that I've heard, heard from Rob, and, and Peter can speak more about it because uh, he's involved with the journal. Um, you know, the, the message I, I've taken is that uh, if we look deep, uh, which, which Rob and his colleagues were able to do with the, um, with the well access that they had in terms of the data that they had access to, if we look deep, there's, there's a lot of water there. Um, how exactly how fresh it is, exactly how much energy it would take to get it up to the surface, exactly how much energy it would take to make it more fresh if it's not sufficiently fresh. I think those are open questions. Um, I, I think the the main message is that in California, where you know, we have a kind of a portfolio of water sources, we have a portfolio of water uses, and and we're not totally aligned. Uh, so as my um, my high school daughter has said, why are we flushing our toilet with water that's just as good as the water we drink? Why are we flushing this clean water down the toilet? And that's one example, one very local example of, of our uh, uses not totally being aligned with the quality of our supply. Uh, so I think the main message from that paper more generally is that we do have opportunities in California to look at where are we using water, what level of quality do we need, what are the costs and benefits of, of aligning those uh, more optimally. Karen Ross, we're drilling deeper for oil. Why not drill deeper for uh, water, especially if it gets more scarce? Well, uh, one of the, one of, it's just the cost of doing that, the energy of doing that. These are huge factors in all of this. And, and really reconciling the value of 
that we put on water for the value that it brings us back, which is why we've seen the crop shifts that we've seen, is that we're, we're generating more efficient economic use of every drop by matching it to higher value crops that can't be duplicated across the country or in some places around the world. So it becomes a question of economics as well as we do have in this state a very strong environmental ethic um, from farmers all the way to every citizen of this state. And doing those kinds of decisions and the impact it has on communities and neighbors uh, gets factored in, and especially with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. We will see very hard decisions being made that will affect people's livelihoods, the ability to continue the kind of lifestyle we have, but it comes down to the value of water for the value it brings to us, and we all have a role to play in using every drop as efficiently as we possibly so can. So what are you saying? Are you saying that there'll be less of cotton, alfalfa, almonds, that there, sort of thing? There is already a lot less cotton, um, our, our, when I moved to the state almost 30 years ago, we had over a million acres of cotton in the Central Valley. Last year, I don't think we'll hit even 220,000 acres of cotton. That's just one example of crop shifts that are happening. Farmers in the state respond very rapidly to markets, um, and we are shifting more and more into those kinds of produce crops, tree nut crops, processing tomato crops. We still have a lot of cows in the state, um, and that's what the alfalfa is used for, but we're really matching where the highest value is and for the value <laughs> add, and like milk turns into a lot of different things. Peter Glick, is the market working to shift uh, those crops to where they ought to be, so the highest value, away from cotton to other things? Sure. Uh, markets work, but, but no... I, my, my economist friends like to say, let the markets work. They let the free market set the price of water, and then people will be efficient. I, I, I'm not an economist, uh, but there's no such thing as a free market. We don't have perfect markets. Water is allocated not on a market system in California, with a few exceptions. It's, it's given out by water rights, and those water rights are 100 years old or more, and that's part of the complication. We don't really have a market system. But farmers are shifting. Uh, we're growing less cotton. We're growing more almonds for a reason. The price of almonds is really high. Farmers can make uh, $1,000 an acre, whereas an, uh, an alfalfa farmer might make $100 an acre. Uh, so economics drives some of this. Markets drive some of it. But policy drives some of it, too. Karen Ross, you mentioned uh, cows. Cows, you know, there's about 600 gallons of water in a hamburger. Some people really question the water uh, input, uh, embedded water in a hamburger and other beef. Uh, other people say cows can be part of the solution, that, that if they graze properly, certain grasslands, which are all over beautiful California, Golden Hills, can sequester water and carbon. So our, how do you see it? We, we really do need to account for all of the benefits that come from well-managed farmland, from really thinking in an ecosystem, holistic kind of way about, about how management practices can be a part of making sure that any water that comes off of the land is useful and, and clean quality, that we can help reduce air emissions, that we can be a part of sequestering carbon to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So we really have to think more comprehensively about the public good that comes from well-managed stewardship practices on our farmland, including with our cattle. And then at the end of the day, each one of us as consumers make very powerful decisions, both at the, at the grocery store aisles and at the ballot box with the policies that we support and what we choose to buy. Um, 
I think at the end of the day, we still in this country value choice and we want to be able to make our own choices, but we need to be informed consumers and understand the impact of our own decisions. Karen Ross is California Secretary of Food and Agriculture. If you're just joining us, we're talking at Climate One about the drought and our water future. Our other guests are Peter Glick from the Pacific Institute and Noah Diffenbaugh from Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. Noah Diffenbaugh, uh, help us a little bit understand the drought. Is this drought influence amplified by the climate, by climate disruption, climate change? Uh, so... Uh, uh, a substantial number of scientists have asked that question during the drought over the last four years, and that's uh, our peer review and publication process is, uh, has, is fast enough that we now have a, a, you know, a, a certainly a hill uh, coming up to a mountain of papers um, asking that question, and the, and the preponderance of evidence from those papers from a number of different independent groups is clearly that, yes, global warming is influencing what we're experiencing here in California. Um, the primary influence is through temperature. Uh, you know, the more heat there is in the atmosphere, the more that draws water out of soils and out of plants. The um, faster that it melts snowpack, uh, the more that it pushes um, precipitation towards rain rather than snow, particularly at lower elevations. And we've seen all of those during this drought. Uh, and, um, and the work that, that's come out of my lab at Stanford um, what we found is that it used to be in California that uh, we pretty much got half wet years and half dry years. We got half warm years and half cool years. And, and what's happened with the long-term warming of California that's pretty similar to the global warming is now we're getting a warm year uh, pretty much year after year. 80% of the years uh, in the last two decades have been warmer than the long-term average. And what that means is that uh, it's like flipping two coins, except we've got a precipitation coin that's pretty 50-50, half heads, half tails, and now we've got a temperature coin that's really loaded towards, towards warm conditions. Right? Eight, eight out of ten flips are coming up uh, tails, and that means we get two tails more often. And, and what that means when, when we have low precipitation and high temperature is we're much more likely to get drought, and that, that's uh, what we're likely to see going forward into the future uh, more and more. So, Karen Ross, how is the agricultural sector getting ready for a hotter and drier future? Well, certainly um, some crops have taken longer-term views on climate change and impact to the quality of their product, and the wine sector has been one of the first in, in doing that. But, but more and more of the commodities are looking at what does this mean for crop choices, for varietals, um, and really um, there's a whole new level of, of reinvestment in uh, plant breeders and really understanding what we need to do to try to find um, those those crops that will be salinity tolerant, drought tolerant, cold hardiness, you know, because we're going to go through all of those kinds of things. <laughs> but the most immediate change has been what's happening on the farm as far as improving the efficiency of our water use and, and the adoption of precision irrigation technology primarily in this state because we have trees and orchard crops that lend themselves very nicely to drip irrigation and subsurface drip irrigation. But subsurface drip irrigation completely transformed the processing tomato sector. It improves quality. It lowers other inputs. Um, it reduces nitrogen runoff from fertilizer in addition to being an, it, the most efficient way of using water, trying to minimize evapor evaporation off of those fields. So we have about 50%, close to 50% of the acreage that's using that kind of technology. Um, there are several barriers to why we're not 
getting further down the road, and one of the big ones is that 46% of our land is rented, so you can't go to the bank and use your land as collateral to make those kinds of capital investments. Um, and then the state, with the governor's leadership and the support of the legislature, we have been offering incentive dollars to try to help, especially a lot of the smaller, mid-sized farmers that just need that incentive dollar to take the next step to implement DRIP technology. We're doing that, but our whole infrastructure in California needs to be Modernized. We still deliver water in parts of the state where you're getting your water delivery on Tuesday, and that doesn't lend itself to real-time water management on the farm. So we really need to marry up these technologies. Peter Glick, is ag doing enough? <laughs> so so none, of, none of us are doing enough. Um, I, I don't mean to be glib about that, but, but none of us are doing enough. Uh, there are probably people well-meaning people in the audience who still have top-loading washing machines or six-gallon per-flush toilets in, in your homes or leaks that you don't even know about. Um, agriculture is doing a lot, but agriculture, as Karen says, could be doing a lot more. Every one of our orchards should, should probably be on drip or precision sprinklers, and there are disincentives and incentives, and, and we need to do a better job. We could grow more food with less water. We could do all of the things we want with less water, and that's, that's the inevitable future for us. Uh, there's not enough water for all of us to do what we want. I say, I've said this a lot. Maybe you've heard me. But as badly as we're doing it now, as inefficiently as we're doing it. Um, and that's the drip irrigation question. It's the efficient washing machine and the efficient toilet. It's the leak detection. We're, we're using too much water at the moment to do the things we want. And it's true during a drought, but it's true during a normal year as well. We're talking about the drought at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Noah Diffenbaugh from Stanford, Peter Glick from the Pacific Institute, and Karen Ross, Secretary of Food and Ag in California. We're going to go to our lightning round, uh, which is a series of brisk uh, yes or no, true or false questions. Uh, this is designed to inform and humor our audience and make them squirm just a little bit up here. Um, uh, Peter Glick, in the last five years, Orange County has made more progress than San Francisco in using water more efficiently. True or false? Uh, lightning. Yeah. <laughs> do I really have to do yes or no? Okay, false. Karen Ross, uh, true or false, citizens should be wary of municipal water systems being operated by for-profit companies. False. Noah Diffenbaugh, in the next five years, people in California will start to sell and move their homes due to water shortages. True. Uh, it's happened in some cases yeah. already. Uh, Peter Glick, suppose you are writing a movie about water shenanigans in California with Kevin Spacey playing the villain. <laughs> Would that villain come from the agricultural industry or the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California? Yes. <laughs> Kevin Spacey in, t in two roles. Um, that, that movie's been made already. <laughs> with Jack Nicholson. Uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, fracking for natural gas may have serious impacts on water quality and human health. Yes or no? Yes, because you said may. Um, Karen Ross, the rise of fracking, a water-intensive practice, is putting the agricultural and oil industries in conflict in some cases. True. Over water. In some cases, yes. Uh, Karen Ross, senior water rights in California probably will be changed if the current drought continues. That's, Australia did that. Will it happen here? No. 
Well, I, I, see, I can't give you contact. <laughs> like the governance structure there is so completely different that that's hard to imagine. So. Peter Glick, reform of California water rights could result in a more equitable, equitable distribution of water in the state. Oh, sure. Uh, Karen Ross, nothing big happens in California water without the blessing of U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. True. Uh, What's I pandering? I'm sorry. Peter Glick, one day you will drink recycled pea water as part of your normal life. True. Uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, almonds get a bad rap. They actually deliver a reasonable amount of protein per drop of water compared to other protein sources. That's true, and I will declare a conflict. I keep a bag of almonds in my office. <laughs> I, I eat them every day. We actually had the head of the, uh, the sustainability person from the almond board here a few weeks ago talking about water. You can listen to that podcast. I also have a bag of almonds next to my desk. <laughs> um, Karen Ross, what crop is the biggest water hog in California? <laughs> I know you love all your 400 commodities, but um, water intensive. Okay, water intensive. I'll have to say alfalfa because we do seven cuttings a year and alfalfa. And we export a lot to Japan for the cows. Uh, Peter Glick, what crop is the biggest water hog in California? The largest single user of water is alfalfa in terms of acre feet per year. But that's not necessarily the best measure. Is it dollars per gallon? Is it yield per gallon? It's a tough tough one. Uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, as a former farm... Stanford is a bigger water hog than UC Berkeley, <laughs> where people shower like Europeans. I don't know the data on that. <laughs> okay, then maybe you know data on this one. Uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, last question. One way to save water is to shower with a friend. <laughs> Depends how long the shower lasts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have to end it there. How'd they do on the, cl- on the uh, lightning round? And now, here's a Climate One Minute. This drought has gone on longer than many anticipated. We're currently in our fifth year. Two years ago, Californians approved a $7 billion water bond to help get us through dry times. But is it enough? In 2014, John Coleman of the Association of California Water Agencies looked into his crystal ball to predict what might happen if the drought continued. It's going to be dire in many parts of the state. Some parts of the state now are only allocated 50 gallons per water per house per day, regardless of the number of people living in them. We don't want to get back to that, but if it's a dire year again, you're going to see agencies that are going to, in most cases, ban outdoor water use entirely because that's, in summertime, upwards of 70% of your water usage. Uh, You're going to see, hopefully, at the State Water Board uh, moving quickly with regulatory reform to deal with uh, recycled water. You're going to see more desal plants. There's 10 on the drawing board now in the state that will be sped up. Uh, Things that people may have opposed in the past are going to fall to the side to some degree. And uh, it's just, it will kill our economy. Uh, We need to remember that water is the lifeblood of this state. And if we don't have the water resources available, we're not going to produce the widget. We're not going to grow whatever. And those are jobs even if you don't see it here, it's your job. You're going to pay for it one way or the other, and it's going to have an impact. John Coleman, president of the Association of California Water Agencies, in October of 2014. 2015 went down as one of California's warmest and driest years on record, and things just keep heating up. 
For more on the mega drought, let's join Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Noah Diffenbaugh, explain to us why we should care about the Arctic and how the Arctic is related to our lawns. Yes, this is an area of really active research, um, including in my research group and, and elsewhere. Um, yeah, so the, you know, the weather and climate that we experience in any location on the planet is really a result of um, kind of the energy imbalance of the planet. So just to give you like the, the brief um, sort of planetary energy balance 101, um, the, the tropics get more energy in total than the high latitudes. Uh, and so there's, a, there's, a, there's too much energy from the sun at the tropics and there's not enough at the poles, essentially. And so the circulation of the atmosphere and ocean is really the working out of that energy imbalance. And what's happening uh, globally is that the Arctic is warming faster than the tropics. So the gradient between the tropics and the poles uh, is changing. Uh, and we know that that's, um, that's something that was predicted from, from theory of global warming a long time ago. It's something we're absolutely seeing in observations. And so the question is, uh, because the atmospheric circulation is really a result of that gradient, uh, as that gradient changes, what are we likely to see in the weather and climate that we experience anywhere uh, in particular on Earth? So that's the, that's the primer. Um, in terms of California, uh, we know that... Um, because we get most of our, our precipitation from kind of this uh, train of storms that, that comes across the Pacific during our, our rainy season, uh, we get most of our water from just a handful of storms, actually, um, that anything that disrupts that, uh, we're, we're going to be sensitive to. And what we've seen during this drought is this area of really high atmospheric pressure called the Ridiculously Resilient Ridge. And there are a lot of hypotheses about how uh, changes in the Arctic could affect uh, that kind of, of feature. And, and so one of the hypotheses is that we could see more, uh, more frequent blocking, more frequent ridiculous uh, resilient ridging as a result of that, that loss of Arctic sea ice. And certainly this year uh, we had a really strong El Nino. We had record low winter sea ice in the Arctic and something we're trying to chase down is, is what's the interplay between those factors. And what can we expect with La Nina, which is typically a drier, we, you know, that Predictions about specific water years in California are difficult, but Noah Diffenbaugh, what do we, can we look to in a 2017 with La, La Nina? Is that going to trend more dry, warm? So I think there are, you'll hear two answers about this. One, one answer is uh, here, look at this graph of history. You can see that um, we've had all kinds of precipitation years in California with all kinds of combinations of El Nino and La Nina, and it's totally noisy. So that's one answer you'll get. The other answer is that even though it's noisy, um, if you could have one piece of information to make a guess about what uh, California precipitation will be like in the coming year, you would want to know whether it was an El Nino year or a La Nina year or a neutral year. So it won't give you perfect predictability, but if you could, if you could only have one piece of information, that's the piece of information you'd want to know. And in general, if it's an El Nino year, that'll tip the odds uh, towards a wet year. And if it's a La Nina year, that'll tip the, tip the odds toward a dry year. Uh, so part of the concern right now, uh, as we're seeing indications of La Nina developing, uh, is that it will potentially be a, a dry year. And that's within the context of what's almost certainly going to be the warmest year on record globally. And that beats 2015, which beat 2014. Is that right? Yeah, so 2014 was the record. 2015 
uh, beat 2014, we're now well on track for 2016 to beat uh, 2015. Uh, Peter Glick, there was a, a bill in the California State Senate uh, uh, regarding disclosure of big water users, kind of name and shame. Uh, some uh, cities, Palo Alto, has secrecy laws around water, water usage. Do you think name and shame is a good tool for uh, putting you know, Billy Bean's name in the paper that he uses lots of water? Uh, I, th- I think data on who's using how much water to do what is valuable. Uh, you know, name and shame maybe helps in some circumstances, maybe it doesn't, but in general... If we had better data on, on who was using water and what they were using it for, we would have a better tool for figuring out how to use it better or how to price it differently or how to offer incentives for improving efficiency. And part of the problem in California, you know, we're a, we're a big state. We're technologically savvy. We're, we're rich economically. We're rich academically. And yet it's astounding how bad we are at collecting water data. Uh, it's really astounding. In, in every sector, ag, urban, industrial use, uh, all of those things. And so I, I like the idea of, of open source data on water. Karen Ross, would farmers agree with that? Um, yes. Um, you can't manage it if you can't measure it. I mean, if you really want to improve your management, you have to be able to measure and know what your benchmark is and have that to compare to. And it's the same with our household use. Um, those companies that have done doing some pilots are giving you real information about your water use, how it compares to your neighborhood, and here's some incentive programs that are offered for doing X, Y, Z. It helps everything. That's one of the positives that have come out of the drought, A, is that we have all worked together, and we have done remarkable things in conservation, and we've made strides to do a much better job of collecting information, doing measurement, collecting the data, making it user-friendly, and that's a big part of what the governor's executive order was um, in May of this year, um, really taking a look at, at, and we are working on that, to have a report to the governor on improvements in measurement, efficiency standards all across the board. So we've made strides because we do know this is not isolated. It's not something that's going to happen in 10 years from now. We'll recreate the playbook. We're trying to capture these lessons learned and improving data collection and making it more useful is, is a big part of what we're working on right no, now. There are ball. groups that are not enthusiastic about collecting and revealing the data on their water use. I would just point that out. Yeah, we can imagine all farmers, yeah, sure, because for the first time, California has, yes. this is only happening because but, government but, mandate. But, but not having that information is going to make a really hard job of implementing the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act even more difficult. Right. And so the value is being able to come together to make those decisions collectively as that community. And without the data, it's going to make their job so much more difficult. But that's so a 10, 20 year thing, right? Well, they have to have the plans in place in the next five years. There'll be five year progress reports. And at the end of 20 years, or if you've missed your marks on what looks like you're going to achieve sustainability, then the state will step in. So there's, there's lots of Lots so we, of opportunities. We might get punished in 20 years. Okay, Noah Diffenbaum. Mm-hmm. Well, just on the data and the importance of data and visibility, um, just to give the uh, obligatory promotion for the importance of research, we do have a project at Stanford in the, uh, it's, it's in basically the, the data science initiative, and uh, Phil Levis, who runs the Secure Internet of Things, uh, so you know, the Internet of Things we hear about, uh, we're now trying to do this with water and water data and uh, figure out a, a, a system for monitoring and keeping anonymous 
uh, so that the information is secure, but that we know, we don't know who it is necessarily, but everyone would know what theirs was. Uh, and so we're, we, we are working on that now. And um, that, that's in the domestic space so that people have more visibility on what their own domestic use is. Peter Glick, uh, one area where there isn't water data because it's in the gray economy is marijuana cultivation up in the, in the Emerald Triangle. There's a ballot initiative in California this year to legalize marijuana. Is that a significant water issue? Will legalization um, help California's water situation? Why would you think that I know a lot about <laughs> marijuana water use? Um, uh, any water use ought to be monitored and measured and managed. Um, if we're moving toward an economy, a, a, a legal economy, where marijuana is a big part of our agricultural sector, <laughs> are you going to include it in the agricultural well, economy? Well, I, I already have, <laughs> already have medical cannabis, so yes. yes. Um, then, then we had better include it yes. in, in and, understanding yeah. where that water is coming from and, and what the consequences of its use are. And, and Greg, there was a trailer bill uh, following the budget this year um, to give specific charge to the state water board on measuring those diversions to make sure that if the diversions are happening, there's real water not impacting flows. So just putting the, the framework around the medical cannabis growing um, part of our existing marijuana picture has already set up that framework to it's, do that. It's been a big problem. It has been. It, the illegal marijuana piece of this has been a big problem for water use in the northern part of the state and for water quality and for ecosystem yes. flows. Yes. And a, lot, and a lot of energy because it's in, indoor growing. Uh, some of it, so if it's legalized, it might come outdoors and use sun rather than lights to grow that. I, I want to get to some of the top lessons or tips from the drought. We're, what, five years into the worst drought. Uh, what are some of the real lessons, Karen Ross, from this drought? And thinking of, you know, if it, uh, yeah, what are the takeaways from this drought? Well, just the remarkable um, progress we've made on showing what we can do with conservation and not have it impact our economy at too dramatically, as well as our lifestyles. I think we're all still enjoying a pretty darn good quality of life, but it really underscored our disadvantaged communities. We have almost 2,000 wells that did go dry over this drought, and that's impacting some of our poorest communities who already had some water quality problems. So it's really raised the visibility of what we need to do as Californians to make sure that every Californian has access to safe, clean drinking water. Peter Glick, lessons so far in this, what, five year of this, uh, year five of this uh, most severe drought in 1,200 years? Yeah, so I, I agree with Karen's lessons. Some other things are uh, ecosystems are often underappreciated and suffer more during droughts than human uses. In agriculture, we move to groundwater, and that's been a buffer, but ecosystems have really been hammered. Uh, our energy system is partly dependent on water. We get hydropower, and when we have a drought, we don't get as much. And when we don't get as much, we burn more natural gas, and that produces greenhouse gases, and that's a climate challenge. Um, uh, another lesson is if the drought's bad enough, sometimes the politics open the door to, to cooperation and groundwater law and some new opportunities. And so I, I think none of us are hoping the drought continues much longer but it is an opportunity to do things a little differently, to have some of the conversations that maybe we don't have when people forget that there's a problem. Um, and so that maybe is a positive lesson. Noah Diffenbaugh, less takeaways from the drought. I think the biggest lesson is that California is in a new climate. Um, we have a, a water rights system, as we've heard, that's more than a century old. We have uh, water infrastructure and uh, management system for that infrastructure that's you know, half a century old or more. And uh, those were all designed and built in an old climate. 
and we're in a new climate. Uh, it's already here. Uh, it's going to intensify uh, as global warming continues. And uh, if we want to have a water system that's prepared for the climate of the present and the climate of the future, then we need to acknowledge that that we're in a new climate. We're not. We don't have the climate uh, from from a century or half a century ago. Early this year, there was a research uh, opinion poll from the Hoover Institute, conservative think tank in Stanford, and they found that actually water convinced people more than rising temperature, more than weird weather, that, 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 that climate is happening. Water was more salient in convincing people uh, than other more abstract issues. People get water in a visceral way. Uh, Peter Glick, we haven't talked much about recycling, uh, reuse. Uh, it, we've started that, but are we going to see more of that in California, and how are we going to pay for it? Uh, Absolutely. So a lot of the work we do at the Institute, at the Pacific Institute, is to look at new models for how to manage water more sustainably. And we've talked quite a bit already about conservation and efficiency, doing more with the water we already have. Um, That's the demand side of the equation, which has been under-addressed forever in water management. But on the supply side, because there really is no more new water, we're not going to build any more dams or you know, maybe one or two, and we'll still be in the same situation we are now, I would argue. But there are new supply options, and water reuse and recycling is one of them. Better stormwater capture is another, and the Institute's looked at the potential for those as well. And the truth is we spend a lot of money collecting wastewater, treating it to a very high standard, typically, and throwing it away. Uh, that's an asset. We have to. We, we talked about this a little bit earlier. We, we don't need to call them wastewater treatment plants. We need to call them water recovery plants or, or something like that. And there's enormous potential for capturing and treating and reusing water for flushing toilets or landscapes or irrigation or, or all the way up to, potentially, potable reuse. I, I don't think that'll happen soon. But we're seeing more and more recycled water already, more and more water districts, especially in the coast when we throw that stuff into the ocean, are starting to do that. And that's inevitable. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And that's where Southern California, which growing up in Northern California, I always bash Southern California for what they did with our water. But they've done a lot in the last couple of decades. L.A. has a million more people than 20 years ago, and they're using the same amount of water. So you asked me the question in the lightning round about Orange County, and, and my, <laughs> I froze up in part because Orange County has done wonderful things about water recycling for a long time. Uh, for groundwater replenishment. They've been a, a real leader in that. Uh, that's a good example of, of a group that's really wor- been working hard for a long time on that piece of the puzzle. Uh, I want to ask, Peter, do you to share a story with us from your book about uh, Bottled and Sold, about a, a stadium, sports stadium that was built in Florida? And tell us that story, because I think it's quite indicative of uh, it's an interesting story. So, so this is in, in part reflective of the way we think about or ought to be thinking about water. This was uh, about 10 years ago now. Uh, A big football stadium was built, I think it was Central Florida University, um, a big football university. Opening day, uh, very hot, it was September. They had 100,000 people in the stadium approximately. It turned out they had built the stadium with zero water fountains, uh, which I think was a violation of the Florida building code, but... (laughs) Um, and it was a very hot day. They had 30,000 bottles at the cl- of bottled water at the concession stand. They sold out. And by the end of the day, dozens of people had heat stroke and went to the hospital um, because there, there was not enough water for people. Uh, it led to a conversation at the university about water fountains. The, the university very quickly retrofitted that stadium with 40 or 50 water fountains. 
but, but it was reflective of the disappearance of public water and the shift toward private water, uh, which is a, a, a bigger problem than, than we think. We're talking about groundwater and the drought at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Noah Diffenbaugh from Stanford, Karen Ross, Secretary of Agriculture and Food in California, and Peter Glick, uh, President Emeritus of the Pacific Institute. We're going to go to audience questions and invite your participation uh, with one one-part one, one comment or question. Hi. Lots are you, of questions. Noah, you said that the climate has changed as if it's changed into a static position, and I see climate change rising and rising and rising and rising, uh, and I'm concerned that we'll have, as I once mentioned to you, Peter, a thousand-year drought. Thank you. So fair point. Mega drought. So I think we we have the the best evidence that we have, and again, this is partly research uh, that I've been involved in, partly from from other research groups. The best evidence we have is that California has entered a regime in which we have uh, warmer temperatures, um, and what that means is that when there's low precipitation, we're more likely to enter drought, and those droughts are likely to be more intense and to last longer, and that those periods are likely to continue to be punctuated by... Uh, wet years. All, all the evidence suggests that uh, both from looking at the historical record, looking at uh, theoretical understanding of the climate system, looking at climate model projections, uh, that, that we are likely to continue to have a climate that, that is punctuated by wet conditions. Peter Glick? I, I would note there, there are different definitions of drought. Mm-hmm. There's, we've sort of been talking about meteorological drought. That is how much water nature delivers to us mm-hmm. in our wet season. There's hydrologic drought, which is how much water is in the system. And then there's economic drought, which is how much water we humans want. And if there's not enough water to do all the things that we want, even if meteorologically there's no change or hydrologically there's no change, then maybe we are in a drought anyway. And, and so it's, there, there's some nuances there that suggest that we're already in a water-short condition. Thank you. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. Given the disparity between 80% of the water being used by the agricultural sector, it's true that not all of us are doing what we could be doing, and some of us are eating almonds and using top-loading washing machines. Are there any other initiatives besides the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act that's either in our Congress or being written up that would address this 80% that is going to the agricultural sector? Well, in, in addition to the water efficiency incentive programs that are in place, um, part of the executive order was um, a new requirement for urban and ag water efficiency management plans to instead verify that they have water to get through at least three years of drought. They must now document that they can get through five years of drought. And we're looking at, um, and, and this will be a requirement for those districts to estimate what their water usage is. It's part of the total water budget. Um, And the other thing that happened is that previously we had 56 water districts that were required to do an ag efficiency water management plan and verify how they could get through drought. And that was based on 25,000 acres or more that was being served by them. We have now lowered that to any district that serves at least 10,000 acres or more. So we'll have 111 water districts making these kinds of reports, verifying their, their plans, and the state water board will have the opportunity to audit that and verify that it's real and that they have a plan in place. The so water, it's all starting to work together under integrated water management. No different, Bob. 
Yeah, another uh, one that I'm really interested in, um, you know, is we, we, in California, we've, we use the same dams and reservoirs for both flood control and water yes. storage, and we've really relied on snowpack. Yes. Uh, Peter can correct me, but, you know, something on the order of 30% uh, reliance on snowpack. Um, and what we're seeing with the warmer climate is more rain rather than snow and earlier melting of the snow that does fall. And what that means is it's putting more pressure on our reservoirs. Uh, and, and that's part of why uh, you know, we're seeing releases from reservoirs uh, to create more space for flood control. And so one uh, proposal that's been introduced is to f- give some more flexibility to those water managers by relying more on uh, near-term weather forecasts to be able to inform those decisions about whether or not to release water. And I actually think that, particularly in the context w- of uh, reducing snowpack, that that, that actually, uh, on a, on a Real, real on-the-ground basis will will uh, give a lot more flexibility. Yeah. Let's go to our next question in Climate One. Peter and Karen, could you tell us a little bit about how biodynamic organic farming might help us during drought situations? Well, I'll speak specifically. Both of those um, systems are, have a very strong emphasis on soil health and really building the organic matter in our soil. And we have good data that shows water retention ability has improved dramatically. So I would use that as one very specific example. Um, and we, if it's ever funded under the cap and trade proposals that are out there, we will be launching under Governor Brown's leadership. He announced that we would have a soil health initiative so that all farmers will be a part of sequestering carbon and really building the organic matter in their soil, and it will provide some drought resilience. That's the goal of our program. But Peter Glick, I've had uh, a sustainability executive from Patagonia up here who laments, he says organic cotton stinks because organic itself speaks to fertilizer use, et cetera, but not water use. So that's right. Organic doesn't automatically mean less water. Maybe the general message, in, in addition to the things that Karen has just described, is that on-farm management practices have an enormous impact on water and soil quality and soil health and carbon emissions and carbon sequestration. So we have to manage the agricultural sector not just for food production but for sustainability broadly. And I think a lot of what Karen's been describing, and she's been a leader in this for a long time, is trying to integrate all of those pieces together. We're talking about the drought at Climate One with Noah Diffenbaugh, Peter Glick, and Karen Ross. Let's go to our next question. Hi, I'm Paul Chapman, a longtime uh, school teacher and school principal in the Bay Area. I'm now working to promote greener, more environmentally sustainable schools. So I'd like to ask a broader question, and that is how you think we can best teach our young people about climate change. When should we do this? How best can we do it in the schools? To what end? Do you have any curricula to recommend? First, I'll mention that we did a whole two-part program on earning and learning green. So you can check out a Climate One podcast we did a few months ago on exactly this topic in depth, K through 12 in college. But who'd like to answer that for now? Noah Diffenbaugh, you're an educator. Uh, Well, we had a project at Stanford uh, that was led by my dean, uh, Pamela Matson, and um, the director of the Stanford Teacher Education Program. Uh, They co-led it, and they did develop uh, curriculum materials and piloted those in Bay Area schools. Uh, So there was both curriculum development and research on on the effectiveness of of implementation. So I'd point you to that resource. Karen Ross? Could I just add that I know how much teachers have, and we always add on things as opposed to integrating it, Mm -hmm. and teaching about water and water conservation and how valuable water is, is a great nexus to climate change as well. I just came back from leading a delegation to Israel, and that country, everybody, 
regardless of age, knows how valuable every drop of water is. And they did a very massive education, and they continue that in schools from the youngest age possible. Peter Glick? That's a great question, and I would, I would add that uh, there are great resources in the Bay Area. There's an organization called Community Resources for Science that helps elementary school teachers teach science. Um, and there are new science standards, national science standards, and California has science standards, and climate is a piece of that. If we had started teaching climate science 20 years ago or 30 years ago, maybe some of our policymakers today would be a little better informed than they are. <laughs> There's also uh, the National Center for Science uh, Education That's in right. Oakland and the Alliance for Climate Education in Oakland. Let's go to our next question in Climate One. Peter Anderson, I have a background in restoring rivers in the Napa Valley. We're trying to save the steelhead. Uh, we've lost that battle. Um, I have two friends who are climate scientists who say we're locked into a four-degree centigrade rise in temperature in the next few decades. Do you think we can adapt to that? We're not locked in. We're not locked in. I mean, if, if, if the Paris Agreement uh, is implemented, the, the carbon budget goals are, are, uh, are implemented, we, will, you know, we, we have a very good chance of, of staying below the two-degree target. That's outlined in Paris. Uh, we are in the we're in the period where where the decisions that we make now will will uh, go a long way to determining whether we see four degrees of warming or or whether we see something uh, more like what's in the Paris Agreement. So now we're we, we have we have the agreement at the international level, and the question now is is meeting that agreement. Peter Glick. So so Noah's right. We're not necessarily locked into four, but we are locked into something. There is inevitable, unavoidable climate change now, some of which will be hard to adapt to, depending on who you are and where you are. So your question's a valid one. It's a good one. There are going to be bad consequences of the climate changes we're not now already able to avoid. And understanding what those are and figuring out how to deal with them is, is going to be a costly challenge. Last question. So somewhat related to the last questions about whether it's steelhead or delta smelt, is around the Nature Species Act. So clearly that's a factor in the distribution of water. But if I look ahead and you, under, you look at climate change, obviously that impacts the viability of species. How, how, what's the thought of the panel? How is this going to play out? Karen Ross, there's, there's some suggestion that the, you know, should the Endangered Species Act be relaxed, farmers uh, obviously don't like it. So part of this comes from building great infrastructure 50, 60 years ago and not really understanding what the impact to nature was, and now we're having to reconcile that. Um, could there be some flexibility? I think that's the real question is we don't have to throw out an act that's accomplished good things and throw it out. It's about can we create some flexibility? Do we have good scientific data to show us how we can manage for species and still have an economy that works? And I think that's the place to focus is on the science of is it just about flows? We also know that for the smelt in particular, it's equally important habitat, excuse me, in the marshes. So I, I think that we have to be holistic. I know that there are some in the farm community that, that do believe that the Endangered Species Act has to be dramatically amended. Um, I'm not there, but I do think that we should look for flexibility and have a better understanding of how we can meet our co-equal goals that we've set for ourselves here in California. And Peter Glick, a lot of environmentalists are very concerned that if the Endangered Species Act gets tinkered with, that it'll, once you open it up, then it'll get uh, you know, basically decimated. Yes, I think that's a real danger. The Endangered Species Act is a line in the sand. It's, you, you won't let species go extinct if you can prevent it. And I, Karen's answer was a, was a really good one. 
we want a healthy ecosystem. We want a healthy agricultural community. We have to figure out how to achieve those things, and it's complicated. But, but when you have species on the verge of extinction, you, you make a special effort to prevent that. Uh, we have to end it there. We've been talking about the drought in California with Noah Diffenbaugh, professor at Stanford University, Peter Glick, president emeritus of the Pacific Institute, and Karen Ross, secretary of California Department of Food and Agriculture. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One and listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs on climateone.org. I'd like to thank our guests here in the room and online. Thank you all for joining this conversation. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.